I'll not for you to give it up for Teresa. Thank you, thank you. I love this format. It feels so intimate. Um, I love being up in front of a class. So this is going to be really fun. I'm going to talk about product at scale based on my experience, mostly at Airbnb. Um, moving from intuition to insights. Um, as PMs, you operate a lot on intuition. You operate a lot on gut feeling. How do you move that from completely intuition-based to using data to inform and drive your decision-making using insights? So just a bit about me. I'm an accidental data scientist. Um, a lot of us are, actually. It's kind of, a, kind of a fuzzy term. I did a PhD in aeronautics and astronautics at Stanford. Uh, I did research in plasma physics, and I ended up using machine learning to understand more about the plasma physics of the space environment surrounding satellites. Um, this was sort of one of the plots that I you know, made and some experiments that I was doing, part of an interview. And in doing that, I realized how important data is at the fundamental layer of almost everything. And that's why I decided to go into data science uh, right after my PhD. And so what does that even mean? That's something that I had to grapple with when I was searching for my job. And so many of you at your company, you're probably also thinking as a PM, like, what is a data scientist? Why should I care? Why should I work with them? Why should I understand what it is that they do? Well, data scientists are people who take disparate sets of information, uh, information that's flowing in from your customer channels, from your product channels, from online to offline, and we organize it. We organize it in a way, we count it cleverly, as Monica Rigotti would say, we count it cleverly in a way that lends insight to your business. That is the fundamental purpose of a data scientist, no matter what techniques they're using, no matter what far out algorithms they're using, that's the fundamental data purpose of a data scientist in your business. So I'm gonna talk a bit about both um, how to work with the data science and what to expect from them. So first, uh, what to expect. What characteristics should you expect from your data scientist? Um, and if you don't have them, what characteristics can you bring to the table that will also drive that same type of insight? One, technical skills. Technical skills are just sort of a basic, basic table stakes. There has to be some layer of being able to query, some query language. There has to be a statistical language and framework. There has to be statistical tools. Oftentimes, even deeper in that layer, there's C and C++. Uh, there's airflow. So the technical skills are incredibly important. And so just take that with you, knowing that they're doing a lot of technical work behind the scenes. They also need to have business skills. They also need to deeply understand the business that you operate in. They need to have domain expertise. And that's the expectation. Uh, if you have someone working in a corner, uh, you're probably not utilizing them in the way that they could be or should be utilized. They have to have the business skills to be able to ask the right questions and address the right business problems that you all are facing um, as PMs in your product landscape and at your company. And fundamentally, data, data scientists have to realize that data is about people, uh, not numbers. Even if you're in a B2B space, it's still people on the other end of the product. There's still people at those corporations using their product. And so when they're using that data to strategize, to use machine learning, uh, to come up with insights, they have to realize that it's about uh, people fundamentally. So at Airbnb, data we really believe is the voice of our customer. All of our data scientists, all of our data science team thinks this way. It goes from searching online to coming into the channel and finding a place to book uh, to you know, uh, reviewing the place and then sharing it out. Even though all we see are clicks and click-throughs and funnels and algorithms, what we know is that represents actual human beings. So that's also something that you have to come to expect from your data scientist or data science team depending on the size of your company. 
And even though I'm a data scientist, I'm not going to sit here and say that every decision that you make should be based solely on data. That would be silly. Because it's not just that you can only manage what you can measure. We've all heard that adage. But you can only measure what you can actually log. And so most of our products have a component that operates offline, that operates in a space where you can't actually measure it, whether it be to logistical concerns or just the fundamental nature of your product, like Airbnb. There's a point at which people come into one of their homes and we don't really, we can't, we try to get a sense of it. We try to insert points where we can measure things, but you can't really measure what's happening there. Um, many of your products are, are the same way. Um, at a certain point, there's an offline layer, whether you're operating on a CRM system, there's a certain point where the person has to go out and actually sell things. And the value is still based on what they gain from your, from your system. So all that is to say is, Here's the space of what's happening in your product and what's happening offline. Here's typically the space of what we can capture online. And so you have to know that. You have to realize that this is an input function amongst many other input functions. So, so don't ignore it. It's a very important input function. But realize that it's one of many types of inputs in addition to customer feedback directly, in addition to user researchers, in addition to design. So this is not a talk about how data science will solve everything. This is a talk about how data science fits in to uh, your product management world and how you think about product. So I want to talk today about what I think some of the challenges are facing a product manager. And this is from working with one, two, three, four, five product managers at Airbnb in the time that I've been there and informing them with data, these I know are some of the challenges that you all will face. So who? Who are these data scientists? What are they actually supposed to do? How do I know how to talk to one? What expertise are they supposed to have? Then the things that they give me or the things that I'm trying to interpret, how is that actually supposed to guide my product? And then, you know, for a time period, I don't have a data scientist. Uh, there's a headcount issue. No one's getting hired. Uh, I'm a small startup. How can I do this myself? What are the ways that I can be thinking? I'm not going to go into SQL queries and code and Python, but what are the data-informed ways that I can think about my product landscape so that I could, I could manage this myself for a time being without someone with all of the specific technical depth? So that's the, that's the outline for what we're going to cover. So who? Just going back to uh, the foundation of Airbnb in 2009, uh, when we were still Airbed and Breakfast, we had, um, this is Riley Newman. He was our first head of data analytics. He was employee number seven. Um, this is just to say that if you're a startup, not a, and and back, in, back in this time when, when Airbnb was founded, it wasn't really popular to bring on a data scientist that early. Um, he dropped out of his PhD at Oxford to join Airbnb and work in this like little, like this was like Chesky's like dining room, basically. This was like almost the, the span of the company. It was like 25 people. Um, what that enabled was an early appreciation of data and an early data science culture. So if you're at that early stage, I would really encourage you to think about when can we start to infuse data and data-driven thinking into our product landscape. And so he said this uh, in an early interview, it's important that early stage startups build a strong data culture early. In many cases, those insights are the difference between shutdown and success. Um, and so, you know, we have a bit of a winner's bias here, winner's curse. Like, yes, Airbnb is successful, as if this is the reason why. But we do have a very strong data culture, and it's been that way since very early in its founding. So definitely think about that if you're early uh, in your product landscape. So if you're there... Um, how do you start to build that strong foundation? Or if you're not, you're coming in, 
uh, how do you even understand who data scientists are, who are these different titles. I've heard data engineer, data analyst, data scientist, data visualization. Who are these people? How do I interact with them? What can they do? So let's talk about the data stack. There's a data stack in the same way there's a software stack. Uh, this is how we think about data science at Airbnb and many other companies think about it this way as well. So the infrastructure layer, uh, there's the stability of warehouse systems and tools. Um, there's probably someone who obf obfuscates the AWS and the Hadoop and the Apache and the Hive away from you. Um, but those people are there and they're super duper important. Then there's the, what we call ETL layer. That's actually curating the clean data. That's actually putting it into pipelines, making sure it's available in tables. And this is really just like a vocabulary lesson, right? So that you can interact with the right players at the right level. There's the analysis layer. That's counting what happened uh, yesterday, what's happening today. That's really understanding user behaviors, especially in relation to business drivers. The data products layer. This is the machine learning, the recommendation algorithms, the feedback loops that are operating on top of your product, driving uh, user behavior. The experimentation layer, if you're running anything in web, heck, even not, if you're running an offline business, you, be, you should be thinking about disentangling causality. How do I know that this thing that we did is actually driving a business result other than just like I looked at a trend. And then there's a visualization layer. Um, so as you populate up to higher and higher levels of your company, visualization gets more and more important because people need to grok what exactly is happening in this table in like 10 seconds. That's all that you get with Brian Chesky, right? So your visualization needs to be really, really tight. So who's operating at these layers? Well, a data scientist in your company and in our company for sure is operating at all of these layers, but this is about the percentage at which. So a data scientist we think of as a pretty broad generalist, but a bit better in analysis and products and experimentation. They should be good at visualization too. They should be able to do kind of it all, maybe less at the infrastructure layer. Data analytics, these are the best people to build your dashboard, to build your Tableau dashboard, to make sure your visualization is beautiful and communicates the right thing. Data infra. These people are super important. I couldn't do anything without the data infra layer. My, my data would be all over the place. There would be no infrastructure to actually collect it on a timely basis to make sure it hits the tables at the right time. Um, that's hugely important. You probably, as a PM, would, would never talk to them if you're operating on like a sort of front-end, user-facing product, unless you're a PM for an infrastructure layer. But it's important, to, it's, it's, it's meaningful to know if your data scientist says the infra's down or something's messy, this is what they're talking about. Data engineering, so these are actual engineers that help, again, clean and build the pipelines and also help build the data products. So data engineers have to be involved in productionizing machine learning models that a data scientist might build and test uh, within a model. They need to actually productionize it and put it onto your platform. Data tools, uh, at Airbnb data tools teams help us run experiments. They create the frameworks that make it really, really easy to at a glance understand what's happening in an A-B test. And finally, data viz. There are data visualization experts. There are people whose almost sole job it is to make data easy to understand. Um, so it's possible that you have all of these, depending on you know, the size of your company. It's possible that you have one. Here's how you think about who you're dealing with and maybe what you might need on your team. Here's also how to think about where to put data scientists, where data scientists might reside in your company and why. So the centralized model, um, super duper early in most places where you first hire a data scientist will probably be operating on a centralized model. What that means is they act like consultants. They swoop in, there's not enough of them, right? 
you have a big product real estate, but there's not enough of them to cover all of it. So they swoop in when they're needed. They try to quickly understand the pro the problem space. They look at some data, come up with a solution and like, here you go. That's your answer. The benefits of this early in the company, especially, um, and this is where Airbnb started with its data scientist team when it was, you know, four or five, six people. Um, they learn, a, they, they're able to like sort of double down and learn from each other on programming and statistics. They're able to uh, work within their own set of functions uh, to be leaders in those functions. So it's, it's a, at the early stage, it's a benefit for them and it's a benefit for the company because they can be nimble and move around to different product landscapes. But then you get a little bigger and the product landscape gets a little deeper and that stops working because it takes them too long to come up to speed on the problem it is that you need them to solve. So then you might move to a fully embedded model. And so in the fully embedded model, the benefits there when they're sitting with the team, and this was a big shakeup at Airbnb in around 2014, 15, um, they went embedded. So they, they broke away from the, the sort of unified sort of uh, consultant model and went embedded and everyone sat within their product team. And the benefits of that are that now they have the domain expertise. They have the thought leadership on that team. They know exactly what the product is. They don't need time to get up to speed. They have a lot of impact, but they lose the benefit of learning next techniques and best practices from one another. They're not sharing across teams. So, but, but it's good for a certain stage of the company. So all of this is just to say, think about where your data scientist might be with the scale of your company and your product, uh, where they might be best placed. There's benefits and drawbacks to either. Airbnb right now is here. We're a hybrid model. So I sit embedded within a product team. I sit on the uh, host services team. So formerly I sat on host growth, which was all about the funnel of onboarding hosts, growing the host population, getting them on board, trying to move the needle with experiments. Uh, to get them to add a listing, get them to put their home on Airbnb. I won't say I grew tired of that. I'll say it's really, really hard to move the needle on some of these things. Some people just feel like they will never be able to take a good photo. And there's just like nothing, there's like very little you can do to like move the needle there. They're just like, I'm not good at this. My place is not good enough. What are you going to do? So I ended up on host services team, which is a community powered team that takes super hosts and really, really engaged members of the community and uses them to power and drive other hosts to onboard to the platform. And so I'm in the embedded in the in the hybrid model, rather. So I sit within this product team, um, but I report up to data science as a function. So I'm not reporting to a PM, which is actually really, really important. Um, and think about this as PMs, do you want someone who's responsible for the data to be beholden to you to get the answer that you are already predisposed to have? Is that really what you want? Or do you want them to independently come up with their results, independently have those vetted through their data science organization and say, you know what, you were kind of wrong. And like, this is the actual thing and we should actually switch gears. But if they report up to you, that's trickier, right? It's a bit trickier. So this is why we ended up with a hybrid model. Um, and we operate this way on our teams um, using Airbnb's principles for decision-making. Uh, we operate leanly, we're outcome and OKR driven as opposed to product landscape driven. So if this particular surface, surface area of the product isn't driving the OKR anymore, we move on. So it's an OKR-driven team. Um, we have small teams, pretty small teams. We try to operate on the two-pizza rule that Jeff Bezos, who in the same day went from like richest guy to like not in the same day, um, that Jeff Bezos sort of, uh, sort of came up with that if it takes more than two pizzas, to feed your team, then it's too big. 
So we try to operate leanly in that way. And we try to push down decision-making. There's no like waiting for something to bubble up. Everybody's sitting within the team and you know, the PM might make the final call, but maybe DS makes, makes the call and informs that maybe design makes the call, but the decision-making is right there in the product team. And that's the beauty of this sort of hybrid embedded, but reporting structure data science model. We operate again, as I said, on cross-functional teams. So there's engineering, obviously that lays the foundation. They're actually building the product, give them a lot of credit. There's design, they're making your product beautiful and usable and allowing users to actually uh, be able to understand it. There's user experience researchers. Uh, data science operates in sync with user experience. So if we're big data, they're small data. If we're saying what's happening, they might be saying why it's happening. And then of course, data science. So that's, that's the landscape of how we operate our product, our product team. And PMs, you know, there might be 10 engineers, two researchers, three designers, two data scientists. A PM's job is to take all of that feedback in addition to the bigger landscape and try to move that into a product direction that makes sense. So you guys have a tough job, but think about how to use data science most effectively. So on those challenges, let's get to guiding the product. And leveraging data insights. So when you set up kind of problems uh, that your data scientists might tackle, data scientists are only as impactful as the context that they have for the set of problems they're meant to solve. Context. It happens everywhere that it's not just Airbnb, it's everywhere. Someone will give you a, a data scientist a list of things and say, can you give me this number and this number and this number and this number? That doesn't work. They need context. Data scientists are more than just SQL monkeys. They're designed, we, we are taught, we're trained to ask scientific questions. We're trained to be hypothesis driven. And if there's no context around that, we can't do that. You're underutilizing your data scientist if you go into a room with like 3 PMs and like a designer and say, oh, we need to know this, 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 and this, that's the wrong way to do it. Data scientists should be in that conversation. That's how you start the process of guiding product development using data. They have to be involved in the problem statement in the generation of how you're going about solving it. So, just a bit of you know, humble brag, Airbnb has 160 million um, guest arrivals, 3 million-ish homes, 191 companies. That's a lot of data. There's a lot of real estate to cover. So the couple things that I want to go over in this section in terms of how you think about involving data scientists who have access to all of this information, this is just to tell you like they have access to a lot that you might not have access to for whatever reason. Um, there are a couple ways to think about utilizing that. I'm gonna talk a bit about machine learning, where and when it might be applicable, and experimentation. How to think about experimentation and where and when that might be applicable as well. Those are two tools that data scientists are really pretty good at. So let's talk about ML. Airbnb's machine learning vision is to establish this robust, extensible, efficient ML infrastructure so that anyone at the company um, can use machine learning so that any data scientist doesn't take them you know, months to spin up an ML model. Um, maybe your company's thinking in that way as well. Um, if they're not, maybe they should be. Um, that said, even if uh, you know, a, a team of data scientists and engineers need to like, pair together to spin up an ML model, think about where it's gonna have the highest impact and highest leverage. And so to help you think through that, I'm gonna give you a couple examples of where Airbnb uses it. Everywhere. 
almost every step of the experience, we're using predictive modeling with feedback loops to drive insights. That's the really basic definition of machine learning. It's not crazy. Everyone here knows what a linear regression is. Machine learning is just a linear regression with feedback loops. Being able to take the next step of the data and feed it back into the model and make the model better. That's really all machine learning is. Um, and so, yes, of course we use it everywhere, almost every step of the user experience. So where might you think of using it? Search, search ranking. Pretty obvious example. If you have anything where people in your product have to search for something, even if it's searching for their clients in a CRM system, if it's searching for um, their contacts in Slack, uh, people probably have to search for something. You should be thinking about ML on search. So we use machine learning for account takeover prediction to help keep uh, guests safe. Someone could, have, someone could have taken over a host account. We have to be able to predict when that's going to happen and disallow and ghost a user or disallow a guest booking. So we use machine learning there. Pricing. You know, historically, for a number of years, Airbnb hosts just set their price and they're just kind of shooting an arrow, you know, on a dartboard and they're just kind of futzing around and they only have N equals one sets of data points. Well, we have N equals 160 million, right? We can probably do a bit better job to know what price they might set to be most likely to get a booking. So we use machine learning there and it's a constant feedback loop. Every set of bookings feeds back into that smart pricing algorithm to help, help, guess, to help hosts set their price. Um, issue prediction. So you know, what this means is that with our uh, customer service team, how can we predict what's gonna be the most prevalent issue that they would likely face? We use machine learning there. Think about if you, if you have any sort of CX support, how inefficient are they? How much more efficient could they be if there was an algorithm running in the background that was constantly taking feedback from them and being able to surface or predict the most important issue that they might face in a given day or in a given week or in a given month? Could you headcount plan a bit better? Booking. So we optimize for urgency and commitment. That's what UNC stands for. So we're able to set feedback loops on, hey, this place is almost gone. There's 50 people looking at this place right now. Usually this place isn't booked. Those urgency and commitment messages that you might see when you're booking are using machine learning algorithms to know um, how often those places are booked and how likely they are to get booked in sort of the next hour, the next day. Ticket routing, again, this is an efficiency issue. Um, even if you don't have sort of an online product, you probably have customer service. How do you know that the right ticket gets to the right agent at the right time? That's a place where you could be using machine learning. So one example is you know, millions of people call in in a given month saying like, oh, hey, how do I, or they, or they email in, oh, hey, how do I use Airbnb? Like that's like the extent of their message, right? What if that's all our CX agents saw and they missed the one that was like, hey, I'm locked in the basement of like this crazy like castle that this, that I booked and this host like didn't give me the key to get out. Like, what if you missed that, right? That would be a disaster. So we use machine learning to, to smartly route the important tickets to um, our dedicated uh, trip agents at the right time. We use offline risk uh, machine learning to identify bad actors. So this is more of a user profile based uh, machine learning taking outside data. So how would you, for example, know that this individual is an axe murderer. There have been no axe murderers on Airbnb. That's why. <laughs> we're, using off we're using machine learning offline risk to identify bad, bad actors. And um, within our host team that I work on, we use, we've uh, used machine learning to develop a lifetime value model for every single home and every single host. Imagine what that can do. Um, here I'm going to ask for some audience participation. If you had a lifetime value model of every one of your customers, what could you do? Hands. Yep. 
Target them differently. Yep. All of that, right? So machine learning enabled that. Machine learning enabled us to, on a daily basis, we know the LTV of every single host and every single home on our platform. So that's machine learning. Those are the ways to think about how to use it in your business. Now experimentation, which is another huge pillar um, of our culture. We run, we had about two and a half K experiments that started last year. Um, over 3,000 different metrics being tracked among those experiments. Those are not OKRs, they're just metrics in the experiments. And 60% of our engineers, data scientists, and PMs are running and looking at these experiments every week. So how can experiments impact uh, the decisions that you make? Well, well here's how. Uh, at Airbnb, controlled experiments are the fundamental building blocks of our decision making. Why do we do that? Well, we need to figure out, is it actually safe to launch this? You can't just build something and assume that it's going to be good for your business. You kind of need to know, right? Is it actually driving my specific goal? So your team is tasked with an OKR of, um, is this particular thing driving downloads or is it driving subscriptions? Right? Maybe if it's driving subscriptions, that's still fine, but maybe you hand it off to another team. Or you realize as a PM, like, we need to try another method to get downloads. So is it driving your specific goal? And then, you know, as a PM, part of your job is to motivate people. To motivate people, oftentimes they want to know how much am I contributing? How much is that experiment that I came up with and designed and implemented? The two of us worked late into the night. How much is that actually contributing? Um, that's a huge motivational factor. So these are the reasons, some of the reasons why we are a very experiment-driven uh, culture at Airbnb. Here's another one. So if you launch a feature to 100% without an experiment, who can tell me what you can say from this graph? Definitely say that the increase or decrease in the bookings was just because of the feature you launched. Why not? It went up. There could be like 10 other things happening at the same time. Yeah, there could be a lot of other things that influence that. The key point is you don't have a counterfactual. What would have happened if we didn't launch the treatment? It looks like things are going up, but it's also summer and it's also like Olympics, but it's also like it got rainy, whatever. Like you don't you don't know. You don't have a counterfactual. What if the counterfactual looks like this? You actually diminished the value. In this case, bookings, what we're looking at, for example, bookings actually decreased because of the feature. It would have been better had you not launched it. So you might, if without without the A B test, you might have launched it a hundred percent and thought that you were doing well. How many of you run A-B tests within your product or company? It's like about 5%. So think about this when you're not running an A-B test. It's not always viable. That's fair. It's not always viable to run an A-B test, but think about what you might be missing when you're not. Some unique characteristics of experimentation at Airbnb, some things that make it tricky, some things that may, might make it tricky um, for you, these are things to know as a PM. The reason I, I put this slide in is that you might have a, I might have a PM come to me and say, hey, can we just run an experiment on that? It's not always that simple. It's not always that simple. Um, for us, it's a two-sided marketplace, meaning that there are two different populations that you could be testing something on. Um, the visit pattern for us Guests only visit when they are planning trips. Hosts really only visit when they're like adding a home or, or accepting a trip. So the visit pattern isn't super consistent. We're not Facebook. You know, people aren't coming there every day. Um, we're not supposed to be. If you're not either, so you have to think about like what is the pattern of use that's going to contribute to that experiment. Um, decisions take a long time. So it might take a while to get an answer. Um, this is also something that a PM has to know. How long will it take to get an answer? 
When you come to a data scientist and say, hey, have you seen it yet? Have you seen it yet? What's the p-value? What's the p-value? What's the p-value? It's called p-value peaking. You're going to be wrong. <laughs> you're going to be wrong a lot if you do that, if you're just waiting for the p-value to get to like point, 0.05 and you're like, oh yeah, we won. That's not how it works. Um, it takes a while and you have to wait a definitive amount of time to have something that is statistically significant. Um, your, your users might be logged out when they're doing one thing or another. How can you map logged out traffic to logged in traffic? That's kind of an engineering problem. And if it's not solved at your company, realize that data might be a bit muddled, that the effect will take longer to see if, that, if that's muddled. And of course, multiple devices as well. So how do you know someone from web to mobile to tablet for your product? How do you know they're the same person? How can you track those independently? Should you track them independently? Those are things that um, data science can inform on, but is also a complication. So perhaps don't paper over it. It's actually a, a pretty significant complication of running A-B tests. So I'll give you a quick example. Um, this is you know, product landscape. There's a big, big landscape, so there's guest and host, just illustrating what I just said, two-sided marketplace. There's a large product surface area, so what exactly are you experimenting on? Are you experimenting on homes and booking, experiences, places? What are they researching? The part that I didn't mention is that there's this offline portion that we can't control. So we have to wait for that offline portion to conclude, usually before we can see some effect from the experiment. Um, so I'm going to give you an example of a set of experiments, uh, a, a experiment and a set of experiments that drove considerable value for Airbnb. Um, it's about trust. So in 2014, Thomas Friedman said that was Airbnb's real innovation uh, a platform of trust where everyone could review everyone, see everyone's identity, um, and distinguish between, you know, good, bad, and different hosts. So, early stage Airbnb, you know, what did we do to drive trust? And that, that inflection point you see in 20, you know, 2011, what was that? Any guesses what that might have been? Anyone using Airbnb around that time? You, Matt, can you, can you guess what that was? Yeah. yeah. Close, very close. Very close as well. Those are all things that happened after this. Also happened after this. Also happened after this. Say again? Also after this. <laughs> Someone said photos. Not an instant booking happened far later. Someone said photos. Who said photos? Yeah, perfect. Professional photos. We launched professional photography. So even from like seeing something that maybe looked like this, possibly like dark like Lysol in the background, like it's a little bit disheveled to like, oh my God, it's amazing and beautiful. And it's like magazine cover worthy. That was professional photography. That was the type of change that happened. And they did it to drive trust. There was a Fast Company article right in the end of 2011 that was about Airbnb's small army of photographers making you and them look really good. So this was all about how these professional photos were driving people's acceptance of like, this is a really nice place to stay. And, you know, maybe this isn't so bad. It went from like more of a couch surfing-esque thing to like, oh, okay, like, this, is, this, is, this is a good place. And you see here a thousand photographers at that time, thousand freelance photographers. So by 2012, most hosts around the world were eligible for a free professional photo shoot of their listing. And, you know, they believed I wasn't, obviously wasn't there at this time. I, I was in, I was in uh, grad school. 
Um, but this was driving trust and it was supposedly driving bookings. And, and the pictures are beautiful. And they had every reason to believe that that's what it was doing. So from 2011 to 2016, um, they found that providing the service is a really large business operation. So it grew to over 2,000 photographers in 100 countries, 1,000 markets, fulfilled over 200,000 annual requests, and that's turning down half of the people who wanted it because it just, there just weren't enough. There just wasn't enough. And it was a multi-million dollar spend every year. So this was a massive operation um, by, by 2016. So you have to think, we launched this at the end of 2011, and it was about trust, and it was about you know people believing that booking on Airbnb was safe. Is that still the case? Was there a changing landscape? Do photos still equal trust? Well, a few things happened. 2013, Airbnb launched Verified ID. Someone mentioned that. 2014, they changed the rating system to be more honest. They went to double-blind ratings where neither of the ratings showed up until a preset time. There wasn't like one rating and then you can retaliate or you had to be worried that I got to give a good rating and to get one. So ratings became more honest. Um, people started to, to tell the truth more because they wouldn't be retaliated against. Um, another trust factor, just, you know, publicity, just normal publicity. It was 2014 Airbnb, uh, Inc.'s company of the year in 2014. Also in 2015, Apple's iPhone included a 12 megapixel camera. Millennials were like expecting, uh, you know, cell phone photos. Did professional photography matter anymore? You know, with all of these changes in our trust system, was professional photography still doing the job that it set out to do and it was just running in the background? So we ran an experiment, ran an A-B test to measure that effect. Um, I was involved in setting up this, the, when I first joined the company, um, let's see, I joined, I joined in October of 2015. This started running in March, 2016. So in March, 2016, we started running this A-B test on professional photography. So people would visit the professional photography page. 50% uh, would request, and they'd be eligible for professional photography. And they'd go through the normal flow. As usual, they'd schedule a photographer. The other 50% were told, you know, photographer is available at this time. And they were sent an email that said, like, Sorry, just like nobody's in your area at this time. What happened? Any guesses? Anybody? Well, I guess that the group B, out of those, there's like a stronger that's like not still going to get some good pictures. And went out of their way to take pictures. I imagine that. Because I got that. Because you got that. Yeah. Cool. Cool. What, um, what, what will we be measuring from this? What are we actually, what will we try to measure? What is conversion? When someone visits the house and then do not book or book, that is like conversion rate? That's conversion rate from the guest. What's, you said conversion rate from a host. What's that? So whether or not having a professional photograph comes or takes pictures, and you move, you do your property, you know, both of those are right, right? Here's a question. Can we test both of those at the same time? I'll answer that in a, I'll answer that in a second. Um, but but those, are, those are really great answers. So um, let's talk about the experiment challenges. I'll just give a high-level overview. Usually I go in, you know, a little bit more detail, detail but... Um, vocabulary for PMs in the room, endogeneity. What does that mean? So the experiment had to be designed such that you were testing, whenever you're doing an A-B test, the treatment and control, you have to be able to believe that they're fundamentally kind of the same type of randomized population. So why couldn't we just like hide the link? Why did we have to do this like request and denial? Can anyone like, Talk about maybe that or 
I'll tell you why. Um, because the people who go request it, those are the same types of people. That's why it's an endogenous variable. It's something that only is accessed by people with the willpower and the people who go do it are fundamentally different than the people who are just like otherwise right and might not do it. So if you try to compare like, oh, we just hid the link. Well, not everyone was searching for the link. So it doesn't really matter if you hid the link. So that's endogeneity. So think about comparing similar populations. Are, are we comparing two of the same intent populations? Um, infeasible guest-facing test. Why is it infeasible to do a guest-facing test? What guest-facing test means is that when a guest visits the site, they would either see all professional photography, if they're in the treatment, perhaps, or all cell phone photography if they're in the control. Is that possible? That's a good point. However, that's not the there's a there's a different kind of issue with a with being able to yeah. Yeah, it's unethical. We would have to, not everybody, so every, that would mean that every listing that a guest saw would either have to have all professional photography or all cell phone photography. How could we do that without faking pictures? Yep, you could. Yeah, go ahead. I'm not following why... Um, you would be needing to fake the data. Don't you have access data on photos that you would be able to, like, see, like, oh, okay, this was taken on an iPhone, or this was taken on a cell phone, versus this was taken on something else? Yeah, so I'll explain that. So what it would mean is that for each property, you would have to have both professional, professional photos and cell phone photos. Because... For you as a guest, you need to visit and see all professional photos. So every listing that you see needs to have professional photos. And you as a guest need to see all cell phone photos. So every listing you see, the same set of listings, you're both searching at 415 Jackson. You need to see all professional, you need to see all cell phone for the same listings. Go ahead. Where I'm still puzzled is like in places where you've got... I mean, look, you're running an A-B test, so let's say the sample is like sufficiently large, but you don't need to cover everything, right? So you can pick population centers that are particularly dense and then, you know, figure out, well, okay, I've got a large enough sample of cell phone only. You don't. Okay. The answer is you don't. You don't have that sample. Okay. That's perfectly fair. You don't have that sample. I'm going to move on because the organizer's cutting me off, but we'll, we'll, we'll answer those questions okay. after. But you, you asked a fair question. Hopefully I answered it. Um, there's also the issue of bookings, cannibalization. Um, so now you're running a host side test. So for a host, you're either allowing them to upload professional photography or you're not, right? So you visit two listings. Are one set of are the professional photo listings cannibalizing the other ones? Statistical power and significance. This is exactly what you're pointing to. Um, the subset of people who request professional photography is already small. So if you further narrow that down to people who had both, like you have to figure like how long is this going to run? Am I going to get to statistical significance? And the human element, CX. So when people would call CX like, oh my God, like they told me it's not available. I want free photography. CX might be like, oh, just wait. You know, you might get it later. <laughs> and you can try to control for that. But CX agents are designed to be warm and fuzzy and give uh, you know, customers always right. Um, and then, of course, metrics. So what is this proxy for trust we're talking about? We talked about the proxy for trust being bookings, booking uh, as a host. So what was the, what, oh, I just want to talk quickly about cannibalization because this one's pretty important. Um, it comes up a lot. I have to explain this to PMs over and over and over again, especially for this experiment. So what that means is, like, if I search the area around Airbnb, like 888 Brandon, I might get two listings, you know, two, three listings. This one 
999 Brandon was denied pro photos. This one received pro photography. If I see that this one gets a booking, how do I know that that's an extra booking versus just a booking that shifted from here to here? That's what cannibalization means. It means that like maybe the overall bookings would have been the same. They just all shifted to this guy. So you have to be aware that what you see in the metrics, is that the true effect or is there some cannibalization factor that you have to account for? So the results, what happened? The negative impact on global Airbnb bookings as a proxy for trust was almost undetectable. It was there, it was almost undetectable. Um, and that was already an upper bound, assuming no cannibalization, so, right? So if you then assume cannibalization, it's like there was basically no effect, right? So maybe it wasn't working for trust anymore. However, professional photos matter to host in certain markets and matter to us in certain markets more than others. There was a definitive positive impact on owner bookings and owner value. So if I, as an owner, had professional photography, I had way more bookings and way higher booking value. I could charge more. So here's the conclusion. Offer this unique benefit to hosts. Not everybody can call up a professional photographer or pull out their own DSLR at a nominal fee. And so this would allow more hosts, especially in these newer markets, the markets that mattered more than others, to up-level their listing appeal. So what I rolled out, and I'm happy, you know, proud to have rolled it out, and in this particular product, I acted as both PM and data scientist because there was no PM to do it. So allow your, allow your data scientist to like do some work, do some legwork for you. Um, globally available professional photography for hosts. So they only pay once they get a booking. It's affordable based on the average earnings in every market. It allows us to scale, right? It, it allows us to scale up the service and be available for, uh, for more hosts. And it saves Airbnb money. Let's be honest. It saves money for your company. It saves a substantial amount of money um, to focus on different methods of driving trust and safety for owners. So this is kind of the value um, that I want to communicate of an A-B test and what that can deliver to your business. I'm going to wrap up here with a bit about scaling yourself. Self-service. So how can you as PMs, you don't have a data scientist, your data scientist is out, you only have one, they're busy. What can you do? Well, Harvard said uh, back in 2015, HBR said, data scientists don't scale. Like there was an actual title. And yeah, maybe we don't. So the whole model is about you being able to take those same principles and do it yourself. At, data, at Airbnb, we have Data University. You might have read about it in TechCrunch. Um, we have a set of courses that are taught by data scientists for everyone in the company. Um, to empower every employee at Airbnb to make data-informed decisions by providing data education that scales to their team and their role. Um, if you don't have that, I'm going to walk through um, Data 101 from Airbnb's Data University. Couple, couple bullet points about Data 101 um, so you can get the framework. And Data 101 is called Data-Driven Decision-Making and Problem-Solving. So first up, the goals of this are to identify the root cause of an issue, set data-informed targets and goals, generate hypotheses to solve the root cause of the issue, and consider data as a factor in all aspects of your problem solving. The tools that we might take advantage of are the five whys. What that means is uh, when you state a problem, then ask why. Why is that a problem? Then you might explain it. Ask why again. Explain it again. Then ask why again. It might take five whys to get to the root cause. That's why it's called the five whys. Maybe it takes you four. Maybe it takes you on average four and a half, but generally it takes you five. And one, another tool that I'll go over is issue trees. So how do you, in a data-informed fashion, sort of deep dive and avoid kind of all over the, in, all over the place intuitive thinking? Um, but use a data-driven approach to get to the root cause. So here's an issue tree that should be able to help you, that is a tool to help you identify the problem. So um, let's say the share of your premium subscriptions is declining. That's kind of what you say, like, that's the problem. 
So um, then you want to go down two paths. So like what, what are like possible causes of that? Well, is it that new users aren't upgrading or existing users are unsubscribing? And then from each of those trees, you can go down again another path. And the point is to make sure that each issue is mutually exclusive and exhaustive. So we do this all the time, right? To try to nail down and identify the root cause of an issue. And then you overlay data, right? So then it might be like, oh, new users aren't great. Well, like actually 98% of users, new users are upgrading. So like, okay, that's not it, right? So then you go down this path. And then maybe you can overlay some data and continue to follow that tree but you have to be very um, concise about how you do that. And the output is a concise problem statement. Premium, you know, the share of premium inscriptions is declining because, in, because existing users are unsubscribing when they hit blah, 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 point, you know, whatever the output of this is. The point is to get to a concise problem statement to understand why this is happening. And then you want to drive toward a solution. So how do you drive toward that solution? Um, you'll probably come up with the same type of hypothesis tree to say, well, we could do this, or we could do this, or we could do this, or we could do this. Or you'll list out a bunch of possibilities. The important thing from a data-informed perspective is to estimate impact. Um, how can you use data to estimate the impact? So. If down your decision tree, you get to some leaf and it's like half a percent of users are doing that, is that the biggest impact lever to impact the initial problem? Because there might be multiple places where like, oh, they are doing this and they're doing this and they're doing this. Which one is the biggest win if you were to address it? So estimate impact, you know, small wins versus quick wins. Um, so I'm going to leave you with those set of tools before we move to questions and just say a big thank you from Airbnb Data Science for listening today and, and welcoming me here. So thanks. And here's some, here's some stuff you can read if you, if you would like. Any questions in the public forum? Uh, I saw your hand first. Right, so we can't we can't set price we can't enforce prices. Right, so that's actually an output variable. So the input is whether or not they had access to professional photography, and there are a set of outputs. I said before we have like three thousand metrics that we track. That's one of the outputs. That's one of the dependent variables that we that we were tracking as a result of this independent variable. So within the flow, everything else is the same. Within the user experience, everything else is the same. Yeah. I'll remember. Thank you. The question, again, was um, in those A-B tests, don't you have to keep everything the same? And so that was, that was the answer to that. Go ahead. of your processes that you go through. So specifically, uh, I recently saw that Airbnb is starting this new like inspire team, which is like, how do you inspire people all the way before they like actually even start searching? And so I thought that was actually a really like funny juxtaposition, all this data-driven stuff, right? So how do you take something as, you know, like esoteric and kind of fluffy as that and make it data-driven and maybe Maybe have some concrete examples of like how you can start. Going yeah. From the yeah, we have some great examples. So um, for that sort of thing, we use surveys. Um, we we do use surveys in every market to measure brand lift. So we measure um, we measure awareness and consideration for whatever, whether it's uh, being a guest or being a host. We measure lift on awareness and consideration. Um, and the error bars are just longer or just higher because, oh, right, the error bars are just higher. But we, do, but we do measure that sort of thing. That's really cool. 
Yeah. And we have attribution frameworks for like these different channels of marketing. Yeah. I think you have you have a question? Um, in our data stack, data product is um, like a machine learning model, right? So a data product is this, like that's a, the search ranking algorithm is a data product in our world. So maybe it's just a matter of semantics. Is that the case? Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, they definitely run their own experiments. Um, we advise, we advise, we, it's, it's nice when we can, like the engineers can build the experiment and launch the A-B testing and we advise on the outcome. Um, they're not open source tools. I'll show you just kind of a, the screenshot we had here of what our tool looks like. We have experiment, we have an ERF tool. It's called the Experiment Reporting Framework. And it looks kind of like this. This is ERF, so right? This is like a scaled down version of what our ERF might be. So you could see, so the um, data scientists can put in, the, the engineer launches the experiment. Data scientists might put in the metrics that matter, but this just tracks it automatically, right? And so PMs come here all the time and look at it and try to understand the results, even in, independent of a data scientist like being there on their team. <laughs> Yeah, a user. A, yeah, a user might be. So that's that's an important point. Um, you should only be in tests that are orthogonal. So, for example, if I work on a portion of the product, I'm only going to run tests that don't interfere with each other, and no other team gets to run tests like in my world. It's more of an art than a science, right? But it's the it's the expectation that like. I can independently measure the effect of this by putting in one A-B test versus the effect of that by putting in another A-B test. So any user that comes to the platform is probably in 30 to 100 A-B tests. And each of those are in different parts of the um, experience, and they're not hitting them at the same time. That's the whole point is that they're not hitting them at the same time, which is where the cross-contamination would happen. Um, if the expectation is like that... If I'm in this photo treatment, but also in the dashboard treatment, those two in interact, but they shouldn't. They're in very distinct parts of the parts of the problem. So it's up to your, yeah, you carve it up. You carve it up, and it's like this is my area of the product. I'm gonna make sure, as a data scientist and a product team, that like we're not launching things that interfere with each other. And something else that's happening, like in some other part of the product, shouldn't shouldn't affect what's happening downstream. Probably just the analysis layer. Yeah, you might want to be able to like run some SQL queries, some SQL queries, maybe do a plot or two, uh, maybe like put some stuff into a dashboard. Um, that's really all I think that you have to like know how to do yourself. Everything else is like a vocabulary and understanding of what's happening at those other layers. That's what I would. That's what I would suggest. You're expected to, at least at Airbnb, you're expected to have like the hiring as bar as like five years of experience as a PM. And in that role as an experienced PM, you're expected to have analyzed data trends in order to drive product. It's not like you're going to get a SQL test. Not, not here anyway. Some places you might, you're not going to get a SQL test. You're not going to get like a Python test, but you might be given a problem 
and like how would you use kind of you know what methodologies open-ended what methodologies would you use to inform this one of those methodologies should be like I would look at the data around this decision tree uh, or this storyboard or like this funnel analysis yeah, so I would run an experiment not on the customer level, but on the what do those customers do level. Um, so we have a similar issue. Um, we have volume hosts. Right? This is like one host who runs 300 listings. So we have a framework to run experiments on them specifically. And so um, you, can use, um, you can use different sampling methods. Without, I can talk to you later about like the specific sampling methods that you can use. But there are technical ways around that um, to get to an answer quicker, essentially. No, it's just, it's more about being aware of it. It's more about being aware that whatever effect that you see could be cannibalization, right? So you see this effect and it's like whatever size, but you're like, uh, some of it is cannibalization. And that's actually really hard to get at. It's hard to get at. We don't have an exact estimate, but like there's some amount that's cannibalization. And if you see a small enough effect and you're like, some of it is cannibalization, like maybe it's not real. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah.